Comics. Comics. Boneless Comics Podcast. Boneless Comics Podcast. I'm Joe Getcho. And I'm Mike White. And we are the Knight. We like comics because they have no bones. I'm Vengeance. (laughs) And if you want to find our particular brand of Vengeance on social media, you can go to at Boneless Comics Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or Boneless Comics 1 on Twitter. And if you want to find something even grittier, go to YouTube for our after shows and also video versions of our podcast and bonus content and episodes of Spidey Joe's one shots at tinyurl.com slash boneless comics podcast. Right on. Well, today we are revisiting a character that we have recently visited in the previous season. But uh, because the Batman has just come out, we've decided that we'll be covering Batman Year One, published in 1987. And this is considered the definitive origin story for Batman after DC's Crisis on Infinite Earths event. So right around the same time, they would have rebooted Wonder Woman and Superman. I'm not actually sure who did the Wonder Woman title. Superman would have been John Byrne, who was kind of hot off of his success at Marvel. So... Uh, At the time year one was published, Frank Miller had already written and penciled the critically acclaimed Dark Knight Returns limited series just a year before. This is one of DC's most republished series, having received multiple trade paperbacks, hardcover and deluxe editions, and more recently an absolute hardcover edition. Uh, There was also an animated adaptation of Batman Year One made in 2011, and many of its story elements have made their way into live-action interpretations of the Caped Crusader. And so, all of that said, it has finally happened. It's Miller time. It's Miller time, that's right. So, (laughs) Frank Miller, he's one of the giants of the comic book industry. He's probably a household name to most, and maybe others have heard his name in passing on at least something, because it's definitely out there. He has received every major comic book industry award and has been inducted into the Will Eisner Award Hall of Fame. His famous works really are too much to get into right now, so I'll give you a couple highlights. So his first published work was actually in 1973 when he was 16 years old, or just about. He had written a slew of Daredevil, Batman, and many others, and had his works turned into movies and television shows since then. And there's even been a few of his films where he showed up as an actor, like in the 2000 movie Daredevil, which we reviewed back in Season 1, Episode 5. He was the actor that was credited as Man with Pen in Head. He's also (laughs) directed a few movies as well. So Frank Miller, he wasn't the first writer to go in a darker direction for Batman comics, but his version was definitely darker and grittier than anything that came before it. So at that point in time, he was already writing this kind of stuff for Daredevil. So it was kind of his style, I think, more than anything else that he brought to Batman, and it was a good platform for it. I think also being an origin tale helped sort of set the tone for future and influence really every Batman interpretation that followed since then. I'd say most, if not all, of his works have mixed reviews. He's noted for combining film noir and manga influences in his comic art creations. 
He was quoted saying, I realized when I started Sin City that I found American and English comics to be too wordy, too constipated, and Japanese comics to be too empty. So I was attempting to do a hybrid. So his writing style is one of those where you either love it or you hate it. But in this case, everybody, I think, pretty well agrees that Batman Year One is one of those definitive tales that broke new ground for future stories to be based on. So whether you like the story or hate the story, or there are certain elements that you like or dislike, you'll find hours in this episode, but you can't take this out of reality. This would cause a major anomaly and shift in time if you took the story out because it it was the cornerstone for just paving the way for future Batman stories and really changing the direction that I think he was going at the time. Yeah, honestly, we could probably do an entire episode where we just talk about Frank Miller. I don't want to sort of hijack your thing, but if you've seen the movie The 300, that's a shot-for-shot recreation of Frank Miller's graphic novel. 300 that he published mm-hmm. through vertigo there are several other movies out there sin city is probably the most obvious that that basically just ape his art style and translate it to film yeah. so yeah he's a name that's going to come up in pop culture even if you're not part of like the comic book world mm-hmm. uh, so the other creator working on this book is david mazzicelli and he is famous for comic collaborations with frank miller of course. Both on Batman Year One and a story called Daredevil Born Again. He currently works as a professor at the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan, teaching comic book storytelling methodology. He struck gold early on in his career as he became the regular penciler on the Daredevil series at Marvel during the 80s, eventually being paired with Frank Miller as writer, who took over from writer Denny O'Neill. What's interesting about that is that Denny O'Neill is a famous Batman writer of like the 70s and 80s. So apparently, these two characters at Marvel and DC just have a lot of crossover, I guess. I mean, it's on the surface. I think it's easy to see why they're kind of like the street level guys that go out and enact violence upon, you know, the criminally insane. But his art is all just flat colors. And this is not an 80s thing, even though this was, you know, done in like 87 or that maybe the trade came out in 88. It's it's very much a stylistic choice to keep to a very limited palette for this. And so there's kind of like a simplistic less is more approach in the art that relies on like shadows and actually a lack of detail to sort of imply expressions on people's faces and stuff like that. And so what's interesting is that while he doesn't go super detailed on the people themselves, it's it's more like their silhouette that's important the cityscapes and the backgrounds and all of that stuff have like an incredible amount of detail. And so what that does is it makes all the human figures really pop out so that you really kind of notice what they're doing. And so it, yeah, this is a very stylized visual story. Yeah. I I think it works definitely for this type of story and especially, you know, wanting to start something from the beginning, you know, year one and a sort of, origin retelling um, to sort of set the tone for going forward, I think is a really good fit. Like it's definitely simplistic, but also, you know, those silhouettes I think are really cool for Batman because it, it makes him more mysterious. Like not only do you not see exactly who it is that's standing in your window, but he's a shadowy figure 
and all you see are like the glowing eyes and maybe a little bit of his face and then the outline of the bat cape like it's it's really i think it makes the story more gritty it adds to his mystery like that one panel where he bursts into the mayor's mansion as a shadowy figure and says ladies gentlemen you have eaten well <laughs> swear to me <laughs> yeah he's like you fed off of this city and it's corruption for too long or something like that that's a that's a very very iconic moment from this story that i think everybody that's read it uh probably remembers very well i i'm gonna agree with you i think the art services this story in particular very well and it's interesting because i, I this didn't occur to me just now but you know what it really reminds me of a lot of the style that david aha did in the hawkeye stuff by matt fraction has kind of a similar idea. This is a different color palette and this is yeah. intended to be, you know, more grounded, but they were playing with a very limited color palette in that as well. Mm -hmm. And the care the figures weren't exactly overly detailed. And that really I don't know. It, it there was something about it that really sold the tone of that world really well. So I think it works really well here too to just kind of be like we're in Gotham City you know, this is the world that we're creating and you instantly feel like you're somewhere else when you're just looking at this story. Yeah, that's a really interesting comparison because drawing wise, like it's sort of similar, but then mm -hmm. color wise, it's completely different. It's like right. you know, Superman and Batman where one is light and one is dark, like just in the, the colors and the tone. And that really sets it for the story. And like with Hawkeye, all the bright purples, mm -hmm. you know, sort of hinting back at his uh, old crazy looking uniform. So <laughs> with the two like leaf shaped things over his eyes or whatever. Yeah, yeah. that was that was a weird outfit. <laughs> it's very weird. But we're here to talk about Batman Year One. So the story is focused on the street level activities and crime, of course, because it's Gotham, following a young Bruce Wayne and James Gordon as they move to Gotham City and start to form an alliance against its corruption. So many of the superhuman elements, supervillains, gadgets, things like that that we're familiar with in a lot of modern stories are not present here. This is really almost more like a crime noir story. Mm -hmm. So many times Bruce is actually just out on the streets as himself kicking butt in jeans with a jacket and a hat. And we also see Jim Gordon kicking quite a bit of butt here as well. And we get to hear a lot of their internal dialogue or, or monologues from both characters as they're working their way through the corruption that is enveloped the city. The internal monologues is actually a really good place to start talking about this because Frank Miller is probably like top dog when it comes to using this plot device. He constantly has narration in everything that he writes. One thing that I that I noticed right away in this from the narration was that the letterer actually made an interesting choice to have Bruce Wayne and James Gordon's fonts be different. And mm -hmm. I actually thought that was really cool where Bruce Wayne's was almost like a cursive, like a fancier style of lettering. Whereas Jim Gordon's was, you know, more just kind of plain text. And I thought that was kind of interesting how it showed the difference in like the amount of wealth that they have and like the background that they're coming from just with the way that the text looked. During New 52, what they would do is they would have like the logo of the character next to the uh, text box. So you knew who the narrator was. But this is way before DC started doing any of that. So I thought that was a cool way to make it clear who's speaking to the audience i personally am a fan of it 
But I know that's actually one of the things that some people can't stand about Frank Miller, especially when it gets into like the ground was wet and sticky like my heart. Those kind of like (laughs) stock, like film noir, you know, like edgy quotes or whatever. Yeah, I I think you know, given what this is, that's where they're drawing from is, is like you said, those film noir elements mm-hmm. and, and putting them in here. I, as far as the different fonts go, I did like that because, you know, a lot of times too, they'll just be different colors. And so sometimes you're going through and you see like a, a box that's a different color and you're like, okay, who is yellow? Who is white? Like who's talking right. again? But the, the font choice was really nice because that's a, an element that's easier to remember for some reason. But mm-hmm. I didn't like the cursive, and I don't know why. I don't know if it was just like kind of weird or not what I thought. You know, Bruce's personality yeah. would be like. I thought it would be more analytical or like definitely very printed and very tidy or or something like that. He does have all this money, but he's definitely not a spoiled rich brat on the inside. Right. Yeah. It did feel like the letterer almost made a choice to just focus on that one tiny aspect of who Bruce Wayne is and they do illustrate it very well at the opening of the book because you've got Bruce is coming in on a plane and his Mm -hmm. internal monologue is kind of like you know oh the city doesn't look like it's full of corruption from up here I you know I should have come in on the train so I could see the enemy and and you know that kind of thing and and yeah I think you find out in the story that he's been gone like 12 years or something like that so a very significant amount of time maybe even I, I don't get the impression that he was gone that long in uh, the Batman Begins movie necessarily. So very, the comic book chronology is he was gone for a very significant amount of time doing his training. But then you've got Gordon coming in on the train and he's kind of worrying about, you know, his wife Barbara is pregnant and and I'm coming into this corrupt city. I just left being a beat cop in Chicago and and he's thinking like the train is no way to come into the city. And so it's kind of interesting how they juxtapose their different backgrounds there. But yeah, I think maybe once you get deeper into the story, the cursive doesn't make sense. I honestly didn't like it, not because I thought it was a bad stylistic choice, but because the cursive that they use is a little bit hard to read Yeah, that's in some true. of the scenes. So it, it was just, I, I had to like look at it a little more intently to get the dialogue. So, yeah, I and as far as like Jim being on the train and Bruce, you know, coming on the plane and mm-hmm. I'm sure someone by automobile, um, <laughs> that was also to highlight their different perspectives of like they're both coming into Gotham, but they're looking at it a little bit differently. Like they both mm-hmm. see the corruption, but they're attacking it on two different angles. Right. And this Bruce that we have here, I feel like he's a little bit even different than either the modern Bruce or the Bruce previous to this. Like he has some kind of weird lines that he says too. like, I almost imagine in my head, like a a British, you know, child saying, yes, father, I shall become a bat. (laughs) It was like really melodramatic and felt a little bit out of place to me. Was it the Mm -hmm. same with you? I'm (laughs) that's funny think of him as a British child again I I don't know if it was Miller's intent to play up the rich playboy aspect of him it's made very clear in the story that that is entirely a facade because I I know there's a part later in the story where he's like 
oh, I, you know, I leaked it to the tabloids that there was some Hollywood sex queen or something on a yacht with Bruce Wayne or something like that. I mean, I think that's the, mm-hmm. the way the, the narration runs. And so that, that way they'll know that Batman's not me or something like that. It is interesting that he seems to be using the persona to cover up the Batman stuff. But yeah, I'm with you. Some of the dialogue, especially his dialogue, where he's like sitting there basically bleeding out after he's had a fight and he's like, if I ring this bell, Alfred will come. It's like, well, ring the bell. Cause like your, your crusade against crime isn't going to mean anything if you're dead. So it's, it's very dramatic. And it is, I mean, I mean, it's funny because this is one of those things that I read it. I don't know, probably 10 years ago, which it was, you know, the story is already like 20 years old at that point. But the first couple of times I read this, I was like, Oh, that's, you know, it's such an iconic moment. And they, you know, other writers will flash back to this during various Batman runs. But if you actually think about it, yeah, it's a little bit weird. And they don't really get into any of sort of the nitty gritty of like why bats beyond one flies in the window while he's bleeding out. I think later stories would maybe flush that out a little bit more, say that bats were something that he was afraid of as a child because, you know, they live on the grounds around the manor or something like that. But there's none of that here. It's, It's more of just he kind of like on a whim makes the decision that like, Oh, I saw a bat. That was scary. Okay. It's Batman. That's what yeah. it is. So it, it, yeah. Melodramatic, I think is probably the best word for that sequence. And it's funny how, you know, you can read something earlier in life and it doesn't strike you that way, but like now looking at it and having just consumed so many more comics and media, I'm kind of like, yeah, that's, that's a little bit over the top. I think mainly it stands out because this story in general is not over the top. So when you get those moments, it, it kind of takes you out of it a little bit, if that makes sense. Yeah. There's another part where he's like, uh, nothing harms me, but I know pain. Sometimes I share it <laughs> with someone like you. And it just it right. actually reminded me of Star Trek five and, and Cybok when he's like, your pain runs deep. Share it with me. That's so funny. I thought about <laughs> it's like, i mean that that's honestly just the if if you're reading a frank miller story that's kind of how his dialogue runs i mean it's it it's sort of an unnatural i i don't want to say that it's stiff but it's just it's very stylized it's like his uh his protagonists definitely have a certain voice and it's not necessarily the character voice as much as it is just like this is the frank miller writing voice you know well and if you think of him putting on a persona like he puts on the bruce wayne persona of the rich playboy to keep anyone off his tracks but then when he puts on the batman persona kind of like they did in batman begins where it's like he's using fear as a weapon so so you could almost say that he's exaggerating his stage presence by saying some of these things to the criminals because he wants them to be afraid of him and you know like his name or the bat signal or just you know because he can't be everywhere all at once but if it's out there that criminals or you know ne'er-do-wells or whoever's doing bad is like well maybe i don't want to do this because there's a chance that batman can show up and if he does he's gonna say you know these kinds of things to me like i'm gonna share my pain with you and you know right all kinds right. of lines like that but right. also you know you get a bloody face from from it as well so uh, yeah i mean i guess that would be an intimidating thing to hear while somebody was like smashing your face in wearing a bat <laughs> suit 
So, I mean, from that point of view, I guess I can kind of see it. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's kind of one of those things where you're, you're just at a certain point, you've just got to be like, well, I'm reading a Frank Miller story. So I just, I kind of have to go with it. That's, that's kind of how he writes. I think Sin City allows him to lean into that kind of stuff a little bit harder in a, in a way he might have too much creative freedom there because he, it, it becomes so stylized in that, that it's just like, okay, this isn't anything resembling real anything, you know? Right. I, to me, it's not, I mean, there are like moments where it takes me out of it. Yes. Father, I shall become a bat is probably <laughs> like moment one, like number one. But for the most part, I don't think it bothers me too much. I think this is just having read like his daredevil run and having read um, some of the later stuff that he's done. This is pretty restrained for him. So yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me too, too much. Well, and also remember, you know, this came out, this was published in 1987. So we're talking quite a while ago, this came out. So it was very, definitely very dark and, and edgy compared to the time. If this was published, you know, today, we'd just, maybe gloss over it yeah yeah well that's the interesting thing is this this story does feel kind of unremarkable by modern standards but i think the reason for that is because this has been reinterpreted and viewed through so many different lenses by now you know within within the media but also by you know comic book writers that came later that it does seem kind of like oh this is just like a simple story of how he you know becomes batman but that's honestly why it's important, because without this, you really don't have Scott Snyder. You don't have James Tinney in the fourth. You don't really have Batman the Animated Series or Batman 1989 or any of that stuff. I mean, a lot of those are sort of springing off of ideas that began here. So right. it's kind uh, of in like, that sense. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like when we reviewed Hellboy Seed of Destruction, which that was season one episode seven for anyone who's keeping track but (laughs) we said the same sort of thing there where it was like this seems like almost like a watered down version of that character but it only seems that way because we know what it's been expanded into later and we're looking back at that origin so it's easy to say oh this character is missing and this plot device is missing and his gun doesn't Mm -hmm. have a name and you know, all that stuff. So I think that's also something to keep in mind if you haven't read this before and you're going back into it or going back to it to read it is, you know, like you said, this this is where it all came from. So stuff that comes later, you can't really dredge it back and compare it and say, well, they, they didn't do it, you know, this way. And yeah, it's hard to have that perspective if you didn't read it, you know, around the time that it came out or at least in if you're reading chron- chronologically, to get to that point and say, wow, this is really different. Right. Well, and I think too, the interesting thing and something that would set it apart from Hellboy as well is that Hellboy is ultimately like one creator for pretty much all of it. I think even the stuff that is penciled by other people than Mignola later is still written by Mike Mignola. So this is very much like a four issue story arc that was in the pages of Batman. And then Frank Miller you know, was off the book and it was on to somebody else right after it was over. So yeah, a lot of the reinterpretation and the new ideas and stuff like that don't even come from the same author. So it really is one of those things that just a lot of different creators sprung off from it. And I mean, I guess that's why it's, you know, worth talking about because it is kind of like a, 
I hate to use this word because we said it so much in the, the last two episodes, but kind of like a nexus point for the character. <laughs> well, not so. just that, but like, it's really easy to have, oh, you know, my favorite Batman is this kind of Batman. Well, my favorite right. Batman is this kind of Batman because there are mm -hmm. so many versions, some that are just subtly different and some that are drastically different that you can pick that. Whereas if you take some other characters, you know, like Hellboy or... Uh, Spider-Man, for instance, like they have stayed mm -hmm. relatively the same or at least, you know, these core things about them that have not changed that much since their their origins. Whereas Batman, there's been so many different expansions and ideas that I kind of feel like, yeah, he he's the character that maybe not like an alternate reality or uh, multiverse of, you know, just Batman alone because, you know, Sure. Add that to the bat family that would be crazy but <laughs> but at the same time like being able to say you know like i said your your favorite version of batman and maybe this story is your favorite version or or maybe it's not but there's always something that you can kind of pick and say well i like this or, and i don't like that and i like this and i don't like that whether you're watching an animated show or the movie or you're reading you know the current run in comics or even if you go back 10 years and that run in comics he might be a little bit different there so it's it, it's interesting how right. he can be very different you know yeah the yeah there's there's sort of like the core things that stay the same of, about him seem to be like the wayne murders even who committed the wayne murders is something that changes depending on who's creatively involved it seems mm -hmm. like and then, like, okay, that's the reason he became Batman. And then everything else about him can kind of be, like, shifted around, like, chess pieces, depending on what you're wanting to do with the character, I feel like. Yeah. You know, it's a varying degrees of success. But this story does really boil it down to kind of the simplest, most effective form of that idea. And that's probably why it's one that hasn't really been significantly, you know, altered or retconned or anything like that. Yeah, even the crime level in Gotham City is something that's kind of been portrayed to varying levels. I mean, it's always been a corrupt city, but to how much the extent is different depending on what you read or what you see. And I, I think in this, it's very, very systemic. Like, it's there's corruption yes. all the way from oh. the bottom to the top and in every layer and there's just like a few good sprinkles here and there but they're really not enough on their own to to change the tide of the corruption war basically mm -hmm. even even the people that don't have like direct ties to crime organizations seem to be abusing their power anyway so it it really does feel like for most of this story that it's kind of batman and james gordon against the world and that's probably the place where I feel like this is closest to the Batman movie that recently came out, because that's very much a, a story point in that movie, which, you know, they take it in a totally different direction with, you know, the Riddler. But something that they show in that movie in a lot of detail is, you know, basically how many levels have been corrupted by the crime families of the infrastructure in Gotham. And we've got the mayor and we've got the D.A. and we've got the police chief and we, you know, and then you've got Lieutenant Gordon down here kind of trying to figure out his way to, you know, navigate through all of that. Yeah, so. this is where he doesn't have as much in common with Daredevil, but he almost has more in common with Green Arrow because 
you know, same sort of thing, right? So they go out onto the streets and they're they're fighting crime and they're fighting corruption and they're fighting these villains that that pop up and they can use gadgets and weaponry from the millions or billions that they have in their right. trust funds. So I feel like that's a little bit more similar. Obviously, they're completely different people and their approach to crime fighting is different and they're different characters. I'm not saying. Yeah, their the personalities are, are drastically but different. But it is another case where we were talking about, you know, is Oliver Queen really the best person to represent the little guy, considering that he grew up in a rich <laughs> family? And I would think he would be even less so because he at least had a rich family, whereas Bruce right. grew up without his parents. So he could at least have a better chance of alienating himself from that, you know, rich playboy persona. It would be even right. less realistic for him. But it's just interesting. We have another, you know, rich white guy, essentially, who is <laughs> dressing up as a vigilante and taking the law into their own hands. But Gotham yeah. is definitely the most, I'd say, the most corrupt place on Earth or in the right. multiverse or, or wherever. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it does feel like, most of the time, like he's fighting an unwinnable war. Yeah. So there is a character in this story named Sarah Essen that I know briefly appeared on the Gotham show, but I don't remember her there very well. This is too early for us to have like Harvey Bullock or Renee Montoya or any of those sort of cops that we're familiar with later. But during this story, James Gordon, basically he's, you know, doing his beat cop thing, and he's really disillusioned with what's going on with Detective Flash, who's, you know, just beating people bloody for no reason and and basically helping drug pushers so he can get a cut of the money and all that kind of stuff. But Sarah Essen is somebody at GCPD that's actually supporting him and is a good cop and is kind of helping him. And even though his wife is pregnant at home, you know, with a with a son that, uh, you know, is going to be born soon. He's under all this stress, stress. And basically during the story, James Gordon does have an affair with Sarah Essen. They're spending all this time together on the job and that sort of happens. And it's interesting because I, I viewed this differently on this read through of the story than I ever have before. And I don't know why it struck me differently this time, but I I didn't hate it this time. But before I get into my thoughts on it, I was wondering if you thought it added anything to the story or if they could have cut it out and it would have been so pretty much the same. For me, this was the most controversial thing that was in this comic yeah. because we have Jim Gordon, who we're trying to establish as the only good cop left, and right. then this happens. And I think the idea is to show that you know, he he's weak just like everybody else, and we have these flawed superheroes and so on. But I really mm -hmm. feel like it takes away from the message of him fighting corruption because at that point he's become corrupt. And now, mm -hmm. you know, if he goes out there and he fights the corruption, I mean, he's kind of one of them. It's like he took a bribe, he took a deal, he's right. left with another cop and cheated on his wife. Like, all those things kind of seem like they're in the same pool of, well, now you're one of them. So sure. you don't really have a leg to stand on to say, you know, we shouldn't be brutalizing people on the street. We shouldn't be taking bribes. We shouldn't be doing these things. And, right. you know, I, I think I, like I said, I think I get what they're trying to do is to humanize him more, but I felt like that was too far and it just, you know, soiled his message from then on out about corruption. So, so I have always thought that was too far. 
until this latest read through. And we, I guess this will probably be the main place where we differ. What I like about it as a story beat, I obviously don't like that he cheats on his wife. What I like about it is that when they try to use it as leverage on him, he ends up at that point owning up to it. So he tells his wife, he comes clean about it, and he faces the consequences, basically. And they, they have to start going into marriage counseling, you know, all of all of that kind of stuff. And uh, Essen decides to transfer out of the city so that she's not going to be around. And I think both Essen and Gordon come to the realization that, like, wow, we have become compromised by the corruption of this city. And they have to kind of take a hard look at themselves and be like, okay, what changes do we need to make in order to stay out of it? So I, I do think it's interesting on the character level of he almost sinks into it, I feel like. But then when he's confronted with it and they start trying to use it as leverage on him, he does the right thing and he owns up to it and it decides, okay, I'm going to work on my marriage. I'm not going to do this again. We're going to set some boundaries and stuff like that. So it while I don't like it as a character moment for James Gordon, the person that much, and it, it does kind of like mar him as a character in my mind, I do actually really like the sort of redemptive side of it where he's taking responsibility for what he's done. Because at that point, Commissioner Loeb is like, oh, we've got him now. And Flass is like, oh, we've got him now. We can finally get the hero cop to you know, come down to our level. And the reason that doesn't work is because he does have a conscience and he decides ultimately, I'm going to have to tell the truth about this, you know. And so that that to me, um, it, it's hard to say that I liked it, but it made that moment a little more palatable, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess that also illustrates that even the people who are in the city who are corrupt and have been living in the corruption for years there's a way out for them. And that right. sort of shows that like, look, if you tell the truth and you fess up and you face the consequences and you, you know, turn the other way to pursue something other than corruption, then, you know, there's a way out versus like, well, you know, you're corrupt. So it's all over. Just go to jail or get beat up by Batman on the street. Like, right. It's another way out. Like, yeah, you might go to jail and serve some time, but you know, again, you're actually facing the consequences of your actions versus just keeping them a secret. Because he could have done that as well, you know, denied it all and said it's not right. true and the, the photograph is doctored and I would never do that and, and you know, just cover it up like a, like a lot of things in Gotham are. So that that is a good point about sort of the aftermath of, of that going well, in a different I think direction. It, I think it's interesting too because so much of the time the, the reason that a secret has power over you is because it's a secret, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And so once things start, you know, coming to the light, basically, that is when you can actually get free of whatever that thing is. And so it, it is interesting to me. Yeah, like you said, that it's like there actually is an out for these people. They don't have to keep taking money to look the other way from drug pushers and all of this stuff. There is a way through it. It might be more dangerous. It might be the more painful way, certainly. And certainly for Gordon, that had to have been an incredibly painful conversation to have to have with his wife. And it's not really shown, but it's it's more they just let you know that she's made aware of it. And 
I, I think the animated movie did this. I can't remember if it was the animated movie or if it was actually in the comic, but there's a scene where like she's getting the phone call from the people that are trying to blackmail him. And she's like, yes, I heard you. My husband had an affair with a police detective. Thank you. And she hangs up and she's just like, well, he already told me. So uh, again, it's it when you own up to your mistakes, <laughs> it, it really does lessen the impact rather than trying to cover it up and hide it and you know sort of just live there in it right. so because then they can't use it as leverage against him because exactly so that quality at least in jim gordon is heroic in a way that even though he is weak he does make a mistake he doesn't let it consume him and just ruin everything so well, and a, another character that we have in this story whose morals are probably questionable would be Selena Kyle. <laughs> this interpretation is a little bit different, and I, I guess I, I didn't know that it existed before reading this because I, I don't know that it's yeah. as much later. But what, what were your thoughts on that? So it's interesting because Selena Kyle is essentially a prostitute in this. And I think in most versions of the character, she comes from a shady past. I don't know that prostitution is necessarily always a component of her backstory, but her growing up poor, having to survive as a thief, all of those things are, are pretty much entrenched elements of her backstory. This is actually something that I don't think is really carried forward. And I could be completely wrong about that because I haven't read a lot of 80s era Batman comics, to be perfectly honest. I, I think that it is ultimately playing off of that idea that like her upbringing was just non-existent and she's doing what she has to do to survive, basically. What's interesting is that she seems to be inspired by Batman in this story to start putting on her Catwoman outfit. But then, of course, what she's doing is she's going out and robbing people mm -hmm. with it. And I don't think that she and Batman have much of any interaction in this at all, if I'm if I'm right. I don't I don't remember them. I think there's a couple scenes like he's defending what's really a young girl, basically, that's that's being pimped out. He's protecting her bruises at one point. And I think maybe Selena gets involved in that fight. That character actually is Holly Robinson, who was played by Juno Temple in the third of the Nolan Batman movies. So she was in the very beginning of that movie. Very, very small part, but she was shown as like Selena's roommate. So, so kind of like, you know, here in this story where they're kind of shacking up together and they've got no money and they're just, you know, trying to survive. It feels like it's one of those things where it's very much of its era. I don't think if this were written now, you would make her a prostitute because I think that even though they sort of show her as having like, control over the men that she's doing business with to me that's maybe grittier than you need to go with it and i don't know that that element really adds anything yeah so so i had to do a little bit of research on this because most mm -hmm. of my earliest memories of catwoman actually come from batman the animated series which is probably completely right. wrong because she's more similar to like Felicia Hardy, Black Cat, than actually actual Catwoman, where she. Well, the animated series didn't really do too well with Catwoman. No, I don't think. they they really like she was born into a rich family. She became a burglar and just you know liked to, the thrill of the hunt, like just liked to steal rare and beautiful things and. 
Was she like an animal rights activist or something too? I feel yeah. like that was a, uh, yeah. I, I think so. So I had to go back a little bit. So I found this interesting that originally in 1950, she was an amnesiac flight attendant where <laughs> she was basically caught in a plane crash. So she was disoriented. She claims to be a stewardess and it leaves her in this like amnesiac haze. And so she loses the memories of her old life and becomes Catwoman in tribute to, I guess, animals that her dad taught her to love. So basically completely different from, Weird. from this. Yeah. So then later in 1982, the brave and the bold, instead of a flight attendant, she is like choosing to become Catwoman rather than being forced into it by amnesia. So they kind of take that part out of it, which is, you know, super weird. Yeah, that, um, that's a pretty questionable story element. But in The Brave and the Bold, she had married very young to a wealthy man who turned out to be an abusive monster. So that was sort of what, you know, propelled to it, her into it. And then, of course, now we have Batman Year One, where it's completely different yet again, and then having her be a prostitute. I think, you know, that part aside, I think having her connected to the streets more so is a very good balance with Bruce's Batman. Because, you know, again, like I was saying about Green Arrow, Batman, like, he he took some time away from Gotham to, you know, learn martial arts and get street smarts and all that stuff. So he definitely is not a spoiled rich kid. But I think he's still looking at gotham from one perspective and this sort of feeds into some of the other like either media or comic book adaptations or you know even the batman where it's like bruce thinking he knows what's best for gotham on two levels one is a rich philanthropist and then two as a vigilante whereas catwoman selena having her grow up on the streets, having her live in these rough neighborhoods, having her having to deal with this stuff all the time and learning to survive, not by choice, but because she has no choice because this is, right. this is the environment that she's in and doing whatever it takes to survive. I think it's a very good uh, offset from Batman. And that's what sort of gives them their off again, on again relationship is that they have this similarity, but then they're also very different as well. That's really interesting because what that means is that her basically starting out at from the streets really comes from this story, which I did not realize. So that frames it a little bit differently for me. I, I guess this is probably, you know, the version of her backstory that I would prefer the most mm -hmm. than at least of what had been done up to this point. Amnesia is a story device that should only be used in uh, Japanese fantasy RPGs, <laughs> I think. And uh, that's, uh, you know, most of the time it's it's kind of like a hokey, like, oh, that's something you see in a soap opera or something like that. He got amnesia and he married my brother, you know, that kind of, I, mm -hmm. I don't know. But, <laughs> but I didn't anyway. know who I was, so I just yeah. started a new life for myself because, you know, <laughs> what else are you going to do? When you can't remember anything it's it's funny because i remember some kind of story beat that they flirted with in new 52 where selena was trying to like discover her true last name and they were saying like oh you're not actually a kyle you're something else and you're connected to a crime family and that was this whole thing and 
and I can't remember if amnesia was part of it or not, but um, that's that's what you were making me think of when you brought that up. She was like so an that's... orphan or something and just didn't have memories yeah. of her past. Yeah. Because yeah. I looked at that a little bit because it was like she had a brother or something and she was trying to get information through the system mm -hmm. of who that was so she could, you know, get information about her parents or something. It was kind of strange. It was a really weird time for her character, for sure. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess that makes me like this a little bit more, knowing that this is really where the, the street level cast for Catwoman comes in. I think that makes the most sense. I mean, why do you become a thief? And, and ultimately, I think why she keeps doing it is because it's fun and because she gets a thrill out of stealing and getting away with something that she shouldn't. And um, well, because there have been various... Uh, almost yeah. like a part of her personality now where it's like she's grown up doing this you know right. it's not again like she chose to hey i'm gonna go steal things because it's fun it's i've had to steal for to survive and now i'm in right. a position where i don't have to you know worry about surviving as much but now i can actually have fun with this and you know be really good at it and so use it for something entertaining versus for survival yeah yeah even batman himself is very grounded in fact he he gets the crap beat out of him multiple times during the story and i can kind of take that or leave it how i feel about it i'm i'm wondering if he should have been more fully formed when he comes back to gotham or if it makes sense for him to come back and you know he's got all this training but he's still running into a lot of bumps because there do seem to be some mistakes that he makes early on that are pretty amateurish, but that may just come from the rich background. Like when he's defending the prostitute from getting beat up early on in the story, he's like surprised when the prostitute stabs him in the leg to protect her pimp and, and stuff like that. And it's like, well, that's something that had you been poor, had you been around crime and corruption and stuff like that for a while, maybe you would have seen that coming. but that's just not the world that Bruce Wayne occupies. So I just yeah. thought that was kind of interesting how many times Batman actually gets like beat down in this right. story. Well, and I guess that depends on what, you know, where he was for those 12 years that he wasn't in Gotham. Like, you know, it's like he, not explained at all. Yeah. Like if you went to, you know, rich person, martial arts training out in the woods, obviously, <laughs> yeah, he'd be a really good fighter, but he wouldn't be able to anticipate things like that. If he did sort of more of the Batman Begins where he's in like, I don't know what, third world countries and letting himself get captured and and turned over to all kinds of bad situations to sort of test his metal or right. you know, just listen to what people say and and not just the martial arts, but like get the psychology of, you know, how these people think, because I, you know, a lot of good detective stories, that's what you have to do is you have to get inside the mind of the criminal and understand how they work. And I think, I think those are some of the most fun Batman stories when you have that like detective angle, but then you also have yeah. the martial arts and, and the fighting and it looks really polished, but you know, this being him, him, what a year or two out, of all of that, it makes sense that when he first starts it, he's not going to be perfect. He's not going to anticipate everything. And I think that's what we've seen a lot is, you know, that Batman who's been doing it for years. He's the grizzled right. veteran. He's able to punch somebody in the face over his shoulder, not even looking at them or seeing them coming <laughs> because he's just, you know, that good, that, that kind of thing, you know, and maybe that has a little bit to do with the 
crazy 90s, you know, kung fu action. Here I go again with the crazy 90s. But um, you know what, though? That's one of those elements that it's just like, I don't care if it doesn't make sense. It's so fun. It, it really it's, is. It's just like it's anytime Batman does that, just the 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 fist straight up in the air, you know, to the side of him and just sucker punches somebody like that without even looking. I'm just like, yeah, man. That's, yeah, that's bad. That's that's Batman. <laughs> but yeah, he, so I don't know. He's definitely more grounded in this. And the only part about that that I don't it's not that I don't like it. It's just that it sort of takes me out of it because, you know, what Batman does is so risky. Like his name almost should mm -hmm. be Daredevil because he's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, not because of the character, but because he gets out there and he's putting himself in these situations where he could very easily be killed and survives. And it's like, how long can you be in a, in a situation like that where you fly around the city in a cape drawing attention to yourself taking out bad guys and one of them gets lucky and you know then that's it for you and you're yeah over with i mean there's no way that could he really make a career out of this and do it for you know 40 50 years the physical toll alone and there are some stories that deal with that you know of all these martial arts and this athleticism and everything that he does would be so great for one person to take on their own so i i think right. when you if you start to overanalyze it, it gets to the point where it's, you know, it can't really be realistic at all that one guy with no gadgets and, you know, maybe a little bit of Kevlar or something could do all of these things because it's just physically and mentally draining, you know, let alone trying to either run Wayne Industries or at least put up a Playboy persona, you know, he'd sure. sleep so much he would take baths and Epsom salt and maybe even go the like Ben Affleck way of sleeping in a torpedo tube, you know, in water because <laughs> and you get up and your knees crack and you're just like, oh, you know, here we go. Yeah, again. man. I mean, it's it's funny that, that you mentioned like how much damage he takes, because that was the one thing that really took me out of this story. Um, is that uh, in the leg and well, yeah, he after that sequence where he gets stabbed in the leg, he takes like several other punches. And and he's he's like sitting in the back of a car or something, and he's he's basically bleeding out. And at this point in the story, it's like he just summons the grit and determination to power through it and like knock some cops' heads together and then escape. And I'm just like, okay. But two seconds ago, like your narration was like, I'm not gonna survive this night. I was stupid, I made some mistakes. So it is kind of one of those where the story is so gritty and realistic for most of it that whenever they do those things, it it kind of takes me out of the narrative a little bit. Right. Like the, his... I think he and Gordon recover from injuries around the same time at the story that I'm just like, there's no way that you're like walking right now. Well, like, in his know. trauma from being a child and having his parents murdered in front of him is enough right. motivation for him this many years later to get back up and get out there like it, it just right. seem like enough to hold on to to be able to get through that kind of grueling situation and it's funny because there's a similar thing that happens in the batman movie that mm -hmm. came out recently but i'll save that for the after show because it would be a spoiler <laughs> but as far Fair as enough. batman year one goes yeah the he survives a lot and you know for it being his first year year one it doesn't seem like he would have that many more years or maybe this is what prompts him to hey i can <laughs> you know 
spend R&D money to develop super thin Kevlar or whatever and bake that into my suit without making it bulky. And I yeah, can... maybe I, I guess you could. I, that never occurred to me that you could like spin the experiences in this story into his reason why he becomes so gadgets. And right. Like I need some yeah. healing nanites or, or, you know, <laughs> I, I need, uh, I need a first aid kit in my utility belt. I need some gadgets to help me escape. So like when I'm about to pass out, you know, I can just summon the Batmobile or I can call Alfred or I can, you know, do all these things to, to survive. Right. And then, you know, the bat cave also becomes like a hospital ward for a patient of one, you know, for every, outing that he goes on to but it, at least with those things it's like i don't know how realistic it is but at least it right it it makes you think that he could survive longer doing it but this this i was just i was scared for him like <laughs> right. seeing him young and in inexperienced i'm just like dude you're gonna get it oh this isn't gonna go very well it it does it does do a good job of putting him in real jeopardy and uh i i think i think gordon as well there, there are moments yeah. where like Flass is like, you got to be careful. Like you've got a pregnant wife at home and stuff like that, where I'm just like, oh, wow. Like they're, you know, the the corrupt police are not playing around with him. Either. Well, And Gordon's cocky too. He's like, oh, it's yeah. been, you know, several years since I fought a green beret, but here <laughs> I should at least give him a handicap. And he throws the guy a bat. Yeah. Like, that well, was so stupid. I'm going to beat the crap out of you, but just to give you a chance at defending yourself, here's a wooden bat. Like what? what <laughs> and this is a corrupt cop that he's giving it to as well like you know that there's no fighting fair but he's just that confident that he's going to beat the crap out of this guy yeah like, geez, it is dude. satisfying when he like ties up blast naked like outside beaten <laughs> up and he's like he's not going to report this he'll make up a story about how like 10 people did it to him or something yeah it's like, like oh that's pretty funny go ahead and tell the guys in rikers that you got beat by a blind man like go ahead and tell my <laughs> right. identity it's that kind of thing like yeah go ahead and tell yeah. them that i gave you a wooden bat and i still beat the crap out of you and stripped you naked so yeah tell yeah. the precinct that that would actually be good for me <laughs> honestly the biggest criticism that i have of this story and i have always felt this way Ever since I read it, the animated adaptation, I feel this way, and maybe even to a more severe degree, because I think they they played up more. But uh, should this story be called Jim Gordon Year One? Because honestly, beyond saving James Gordon Jr., which is uh, Jim's son, Batman doesn't greatly impact the events in this story as much as James Gordon does. And I feel like he doesn't get as much page time either. Yeah, it almost seems like they're two sides of a coin. And no, I'm not talking mm -hmm. about Two-Face, but... Oh, well, Harvey Dent is in this, well, true, but he's not yeah. Two-Face yet. But you you have Batman going to the streets as this vigilante, and you have Jim Gordon trying to work from within the system. And the two right. of them as allies you know, would have a strong partnership and and might actually have a chance of getting rid of this corruption. So it's almost like you know, Batman isn't one person. We're all Batman. We're team Batman. You know, that, that kind of thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. And maybe Batman year one is not a great title for this because, you know, it's almost like Batman and Jim Gordon or, you know, instead of Batman and Robin, yeah. it's like these are the dynamic duo of Gotham and they're the ones that are going to clean up the corruption, both from the street level and from the uh, police and political office level as well. So 
I, right. I think it makes sense from that aspect, but yeah, there's you you pick up Batman Year One. Oh, I want to read the definitive origin of Batman, and you're like, Jim Gordon does this. Jim Gordon's internal monologue. Jim Gordon's over here. Jim Gordon. I don't think that any of the Jim Gordon stuff is necessarily written poorly. No, no. And no. I think it makes sense for the story that they're telling. I just think that given what the title of this is, you come in with a certain expectation, and I don't know that you come out of it having that a hundred percent satisfied. Yeah, that, that's all I was saying. And like the Gotham TV show is the same kind of way. Like, okay, let's see what, you know, young Bruce Wayne is like before he starts his training. And it's like, Jim Gordon steals the scene. Jim Gordon's fighting corruption. <laughs> Jim Gordon is basically Batman because Bruce Wayne's too young to do it. You know, that, that kind of thing. Like, I mean, he wasn't because he wasn't a vigilante, but still it was like yeah. <laughs> Jim Gordon was moved to a way more position of prominence than just being you know, Batman's cop on the inside, which I, I think is good because yeah, it, it really, he needs allies. Like Batman can't really do this on his own. He almost does need an informant, but also somebody who's going to be an ally on the inside, you know, instead of like a J Jonah right. Jameson, who's always trying to paint him as the villain, like that doesn't help at all. But having somebody that is similar, you know, as far as that goes like being a detective and wanting to get rid of this corruption, I think is really, I, I like that aspect of the story, but again, yeah. you know, Batman year one, you know, it's not just Batman. There's a whole lot of other in this as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So my instinct on this is to give it a three because I don't know that the expectations of the title are quite met and I, that may not be entirely fair. But it's really well written. The art style really communicates the world of Gotham and the characters and, and sort of just the space that they're occupying really well. Even if it doesn't focus on Bruce Wayne, maybe as much as you would like for a story called Batman Year One, I think that it's a really fascinating character study of James Gordon. So with sort of including the caveat of I now know the historical impact that this story has. I'm probably going to land on a four. Um, and I'm basically giving it an extra point just for this is the turning point for Batman as a character that kind of everything after would spring out of. And so I think that I have to, in a way, rate it a little bit higher, just knowing that like this is the primary influence for most of the creators that we have working today. Yeah, that's where I'm going to land. What do you think, Joe? So I don't love it or hate it, but I think I'm more along the lines of it's not my favorite writing. Like, I, yeah. I'm not a fan of... I didn't really like Sin City and, you know, a, a lot of that stuff. It, it just right. didn't land with me. So this is another one where it's hard to have that perspective because we're reviewing something from 1987. But not just that, but also for me personally, it's not something that I grew up with or that I read previously, I'm kind of more getting into it now. So it's not like our right. review of, say, Star Trek Generations, where I saw that movie when it came out. I watched it a bajillion times since then. I've listened to the music. I've lived and breathed mm -hmm. Star Trek since that came out. So to review that one was hard because I could not look at it without any bias because it was, you know, essentially a part of my growing up. So of right. course, I'm going to 
you know, overlook anything and, and look on it favorably because it's been a part of me, whereas this has not been. So I think there are a lot of people that look at this and say, well, you know, this defined Batman for me. So, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's five out of five, it's wonderful and, and great. But, you know, again, for my personal review, I'm not a huge Frank Miller fan, not that he isn't good, but it's not something that I care for. So your taste. yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's not my taste. There are, were a lot of things in this that I think were very foundational that I did like the direction that they went or tried to go with a lot of the characters, like, you mm-hmm. know, having Jim Gordon be an ally, not just, you know, a pretty face, um, having Selena, <laughs> you know, be a woman of the streets, kind of like I, I had said previously, you know, not necessarily a prostitute, but having her be more grounded in you know, the street level, I feel like these characters are very rich because, and not, you know, monetarily rich, but they they have a lot to offer because they have such differing perspectives that they can all sort of contribute. It's sort of like Star Trek Deep Space Nine, where the characters are so well-defined that you could literally take any story synopsis, dump the characters in, and the story would write itself because the characters Mm -hmm. are so richly defined that they will drive the story forward because they they have so much backstory and so much personality and that's how i feel like this was written where it has a lot of that baked into it that you know some other versions are lacking so that's what i i really enjoyed about this but also you know a lot of things that i didn't enjoy which i i think we kind of mentioned sure so I would probably just stick with the the three out of five. I would be more mm-hmm. in the middle where I would say, yes, this was definitive. Yes, there were a lot of core elements that I like that they created, but there were a lot of things that I didn't like about it. I didn't like, you know, Jim necessarily having that corruption so personal to him. Right. And just seeing sort of the darker, grittier versions, um, just not as much for me, but at the same token, you know, understanding that this is like, if we didn't have this, basically everything that I like about Batman probably wouldn't exist today. So it's definitely an important work, but I'm going to settle on a a three out of five. Well, next time uh, we're going to get into Marvel's Moon Knight from the Dead, which was written by Warren Ellis and illustrated by Declan Shalvey. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but I'm going to go with it. This was from 2014, but it will prepare us for the release of the new live action series streaming at the end of this month coming on Disney Plus. So, hey man, Warren Ellis, one of my, you probably don't know this. He is like one of my top favorite comic book writers. Really? So I, I did not know he was writing the Moon Knight story we were going to be doing. So I am hyped. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's awesome. awesome. Yeah, I didn't know that. Well, he is Moon Knight is definitely different than Batman, and you'll find out why <laughs> on our next episode. And if you want to stick around, head over to the YouTube channel coming up soon. We will be talking about Matt Reeves' The Batman, the movie that just came out, and how comics influence live-action adaptations. Should be a good time. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. We like comics because they have no Later. Bye.